You're listening to The Press Box Summer Edition featuring Adam Candy. Jared, are you going to start using TikTok sounds for all our rejoins? I recently discovered that on a family vacation that I like TikTok. It's a great app. There you go. And I do not like talking to my family. Yeah, see, TikTok is always better than your family. Adam Candy's in today for Ed Graney. We'll talk to Ed a little bit later. I live from thinking, an airport. Yes, live from an airport. Hopefully in the security line. Hopefully he's got to put his phone through the <laughs> conveyor belt as we're on the air with him. But we'll talk to Ed a little bit later. Uh, Adam how do you think NFL kickers feel this morning? Are they worse than college kickers right now? I think they feel much like Jared discovering that he likes TikTok a little bit <laughs> dirty and happy to still have a job. All right, here we go. The first bite. Who deserves the most blame for the Raiders' loss to the Chargers? All right, I have two answers for this. The first one is if we're taking a big picture view, a macro view of the Raiders this year, the all of the blame lies on Josh McDaniels and Dave Ziegler because the Raiders went into this offseason. We talked about it on this show. Everybody who paid attention to last season knew the biggest weakness of the team was the offensive line. And McDaniels and Ziegler did not address it for an entire offseason, right? They did use a mid-round pick on Dylan Parham and a seventh-round pick on Thayer Munford. That is all they did. They had more guys retire on the offensive line than they actually signed or traded for in the offseason. They spent money on quarterback. They spent money on multiple wide receivers. They spent money on multiple defensive ends. They eventually paid their tight end. They spent a whole bunch of money this offseason, spent a lot of draft capital, too, in that Devontae Adams trade, did nothing for the offensive line. And then in the first game of the season, Derek Carr gets sacked five times. On the two biggest plays of the game, where the Raiders ultimately lose on their final drive, Derek Carr gets sacked and fumbles both times. Macro view, this is a poor roster building strategy for the entire offseason. We talked about it. There were times where I thought we were talking about it too much during the offseason, and I feel like I've been vindicated because a big reason they lost is the offensive line wasn't any good, and everybody knew that. For the entire offseason, and yet McDaniels and Ziegler did nothing about it. That's the big picture macro view. The micro view, this is the roster. The Raiders are going to have to win with this roster. This roster, the offensive line is not getting significantly better. There's no talent infusion coming that's going to save this offensive line. So this is who they are. And if they're going to win, Derek Carr has to be better than that. Your offensive line is going to be bad. We know that. Derek Carr can't throw three interceptions. Derek Carr can't hold the ball on fourth down and wait to get sacked. He's got to put the ball somewhere. Throw it, throw it up to Devontae Adams if he's triple covered. Like, at least do something besides get sacked. So in the micro view, this loss is largely on Derek Carr. Because if they're going to win with this roster construction, he's got to be better. He's got to be really good. And obviously, three interceptions is not really good. Carr's got to be great. And if they get that Derek Carr, if they get that game seven, eight, nine times a year, this team's not even coming close to the playoffs. So big picture view, roster building, a brutal strategy that was talked about all offseason shows up in week one. But from the micro view, this is who they are. Carr's got to be better. If they're going to do anything, Carr's got to be much, much better for them to have any shot at a postseason spot. I like how you posed the question. Just and for myself. Then answered with both answers. <laughs> like, 
that's not how this works, Tyler. Did if you someone's to blame, some? then someone's to blame. <laughs> and the one to blame, period, end of story, is Derek Carr. This is on Derek Carr in Whoa. the end. Because Derek Carr wanted Svante Adams. Derek Carr wanted to have this roster. He wanted to have these pass catchers. He was the one who signed up for this offensive line. He's the one who said he did a contract that was going to allow the team to build around him. And this is what was built. He signed off on this. And he's the one who went out there yesterday and had the opportunity with the receiver that he wanted, the deep threat he's never had, the number one receiver in all of the NFL, streaking free behind the defense. And he underthrew it like it was Zay Jones. <laughs> That ball has to be delivered as far as is possible to let Devontae Adams run under it and end up with what would have been the hugest momentum-shifting touchdown you could have imagined in that game. That's it. Talk about anything else you want from that game. That play right there is the entire game for the Raiders. Derek Carr underthrowing Devontae Adams. Why? Because when we talk about the Raiders and Derek Carr, what did we say? There are no more excuses for him, right? They went out and got him the receiver that he wanted. There are no more excuses when you have the roster that you want. That throw cannot be that throw. As to the offensive line problems, we already know what Derek Carr looks like when there are offensive line problems. And the short interception that he threw was Derek Carr standing flat-footed and throwing. You know when Derek Carr doesn't step up into the pocket? When Derek Carr's been hit a few times. So this is one game. It's not worth saying that the entire offseason vindicates either of us, even though we've been saying it for as long as we have about this offensive line. But anything that looks like that performance is going to be a problem for the Raiders in this division because you saw what happens when the Chargers basically take the second half off and you still lose. Which, by the way, was the most, uh, I think, maddening part if you're the Raiders is the Chargers didn't do anything. Like, they got to 24 points, and I think it was four three and outs plus the missed field goal. Like, they, they just they, they stopped. Like, they just didn't move the ball at all. So maybe a little credit to the Raiders' defense there, but the Raiders had a chance to still win that, and Carr... And the offensive line couldn't actually do anything. So I guess the, the question is for the rest of the season. There are 16 more games this year. I don't believe we're going to see that Derek Carr and that offense uh, the entirety of the season. We're not going to see that 16 more times. But is it as easy as to say about half the time we're going to see that Derek Carr and then there'll be half the other games where, hey, the offense and Derek Carr look really good and ultimately, they're an eight or nine win team because half the time they look fine and half the time they look terrible. I don't know if it's that simple, but I know that last year, when you look at the Raiders, you see a team that went seven and two in one score games. And for a team that lives on the razor's edge the way that the Raiders do, if Derek Carr plays anything that looks like that game, they're going to lose because that's where the Raiders are. That's reality. They could be good. But they are in that mess of teams where if they finish 6-11 and 11 versus 11-6, and six, it's going to be games like yesterday. It's going to be Derek Carr for the seventh time in the last eight games, according to Josh Dubow of the AP, having two or more turnovers. Can't happen. And you can't have the third and fourth down on the key drive for the Raiders where Derek Carr fumbles both times. 
That's not about roster building. That's not about the offensive line. That's about Derek Carr's situational awareness, and it's not the first time we've had questions about Derek Carr's situational awareness. Jared, why do you think Derek Carr fumbles so much? He's got tiny little hands. Thank you. Um, All right. Uh, If we look a little bit towards the rest of the season, uh, Kansas City blows out Arizona in week one, and the Raiders go and lose at the Chargers. The Broncos have not played. They play tonight. It's week one. Uh, is it an overreaction to say that the Raiders are significantly behind the top two teams in the AFC West right now? Oh, yeah. It's absolutely an overreaction because everything we just said about the Raiders losing 24-19 to the Chargers ignores the fact that they're one or two mistakes away from winning that game. If Derek Carr hits Devontae Adams with that pass when he's behind Asante Samuel Jr. again, they win the game. And so... Yeah, it's an overreaction to call them significantly behind because if the Chargers are going to go into that play-calling shell that they did in the second half, and let's be fair, Keenan Allen pulled up with a hamstring injury and didn't play the second half, so a lot changes for them without Keenan Allen. But if we're going to keep talking about the Chargers as a Super Bowl contender, they better be able to overcome the loss of one receiver. If you don't win that game right there, okay, okay, you could finish 6-11 and quite easily, but... It also means you were right in a game where generally the Raiders did not play well. Uh, Into the first half, 35 seconds to go, three timeouts down by 14 at the time, and the Raiders ran the clock out. How big of a mistake do you think that was? That right there is not the Patriot way, Tyler. Bill (laughs) Belichick would never do that. He would take advantage of the fact that he had an opportunity before halftime. It's a huge mistake. Why are you not going to be aggressive, especially in that spot? You're already down two touchdowns. Go be aggressive. That was the part that was strange to me, was that they were down 14. Like, this wasn't a, okay, good half, boys. We're down three. Let's go figure out how to win this second. Like, they they needed to come back and win the game, and they were presented an opportunity to go score a couple of points. And I think the funniest part, and not that this is exactly how it would work at the end of the half, but the Raiders came out of the second half, and in, like, two plays, we're at, like, the 30-yard line. It was like, yeah, you know, if you tried that at the end of the first half, you would have probably at least had a field goal from Daniel Carlson. I was, I don't know, it's those types of decisions are the ones that always, I guess, bother me the most because they're just simply coaching decisions. Like, at least if Carr makes some in-play mistake, it's like an athletic decision that went wrong or he couldn't do something. When it's just your coach takes away an opportunity for you to go and score or potentially put points on the board, that's the one that always bothers me. And then especially... You end up losing that game by one possession, right? A field goal at that point in the game would have helped you a lot at the end of the game. And we saw this with John Gruden so much with how how often he was conservative. And if the Raiders, like last year, are going to play a bunch of one-possession games, you've got to take advantage of every possession that you have because one of them is going to be the reason you win or lose the game. And to basically throw one away, I mean, it's not as big as the Derek Carr interceptions, Derek Carr's play, but it certainly plays a factor when you lose a game by a single possession. Okay, guys, I have a real quick, what was the most Raider play of the game? A DB for the Raiders literally pulling a charger and throwing them into the end zone or the double handoff to Devontae Adams where (laughs) Devontae Adams is just lost in the backfield? Well, that one was great because Derek Carr was supposed to block Joey Bosa. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that, that was great play design. Uh, phenomenal there. I think the most Raiders play 
was Khalil Mack, the guy John Gruden traded away, pushing Jermaine Elamanor. <laughs> yeah, Jermaine Elamanor, the guy that McDaniels and Ziggler decided were going to be their right tackle, just straight into Derek Carr for a sack. I think that embodied the offseason and maybe the last like five years of the Raiders the best. But see, you talked micro and macro view before. That's the micro view. The macro view is Nate Hobbs going in and whacking Justin Herbert in the helmet when he was trying to slide down and give the Raiders a fourth down situation when the Chargers were going in for a touchdown. And yet here comes Nate Hobbs, who already it. has had some problems this offseason, if we want to talk about true Raiders, giving a first down to the Chargers that led to a touchdown. All right, coming up next, we'll jump into some of the rest of the NFL. Are the Giants going to be better than the Cowboys this year? Snap is down. Kick is up and it's blocked. It's blocked, but the Falcons get it, but now it's over. Now it's over. Now it's over. That's how you do it. Game's over. That's what I said. Congratulations, Dennis Allen. Welcome to the Saints-Atlanta rivalry. Snap is down. The kick is up. And it's no good. The Texans dodged the bullet. Blanket chip misses. Snap is clean. Kick on its way. End over end. And it is no good. He missed it left. And the Giants have won. For the first time in 2016, the Giants have won a season opener. And Brian Dable, in his coaching debut with the New York football Giants, has come to Nashville and beaten the Titans 21-20. For the win with two seconds left on opening day. Mitchell Wilcox ready. Huber catches the snap, puts it down. The kick is blocked. And it flutters into the end zone. We'll go to overtime. Tied at 20. Huber looking back at McPherson. Turns his head. Snap is high. Huber gets it down. The kick is a line drive. And it's no good. Man. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the whole operation is, is, is a mess. Boswell gets a second chance. A 53-yard try to win the game. His kick is up. It is floating toward the goalpost. Mm. It is good as the clock hits zero. And the Steelers win it in overtime, 23-20. to Back to the Press Box Summer Edition featuring Adam Candy. Very college football-esque day in the NFL yesterday with plenty of missed kicks to extend games, lose games, and you heard at least one there at the end for the Steelers to win. Uh, Sunday night football, the Cowboys put up a whopping three points on Tampa Bay as they lost 19-3. to And more importantly for their season, Dak Prescott is expected to miss six to eight weeks because he's going to need surgery on his hand. Meanwhile, Adam Candy's Giants won their first game against the Titans. Uh, how Do you feel like the Giants are going to have a better record than the Cowboys at the end of this season now? Depends on how long Dak Prescott's going to be out. Uh, this was a game that the Giants probably shouldn't win, but they did. And how about my big, beautiful, fat, bald buddy, <laughs> Brian Dable? How about that man going for two in a situation where I was on a different program as that game was happening live and said, all right, he's probably not going to do it, but he really should go for two in this spot. And instead of going for a tie and extending the game and, oh, we got a Marcus Arroyo moral victory. Uh, no, he went for the win and they won. <laughs> so the Dak Prescott injury, uh, six to eight weeks is the current timeline, but it conceivably could be longer than that. He's going to have to have surgery 
to fix his thumb after the final play that he played uh, against Tampa Bay last night. He got his hand hit throwing in the pocket. Um, if you're the Cowboys right now, are you trading for Jimmy Garoppolo? I think you probably have to consider it, but I don't think the Cowboys are going to do it. I think they're going to try to get by uh, with that defense. And look, the defense wasn't terrible last night. Uh, you know, I, I feel badly for Cowboys fans. I feel badly for me. Honestly, Tyler, I feel badly for me because I was looking forward to betting against the Cowboys <sighs> for at least three or four weeks oh. before everyone caught up to the fact oh. that this wasn't going to be a good team. And now I lose that opportunity. Wow, you missed out there. So I, the interesting part with the Cowboys and trading for Jimmy Garoppolo is a lot of it has to do with how long Dak Prescott's going to be out. And if, if it is six to eight weeks, right, if he misses six, seven, eight games here, the Cowboys, I think, basically have to look at themselves and say, can we win three or four games in the next six to seven or eight weeks? And if they can, then they might have a chance when Dak Prescott comes back to be in contention for a playoff spot in the NFC, in which case you probably shouldn't be trading for Jimmy Garoppolo because Dak Prescott should, at this point, at least be back this season. And if you trade for Garoppolo and Dak comes back, then you trade it for a guy you're not going to use in the second half of the season. But if there's reason to believe Prescott's going to be out longer than six to eight weeks, or if you look at it and say, we're not winning three or four games with Cooper Rush at quarterback, then you probably do it. Like you probably do trade for Garoppolo. And even though it's short term, not even a season, but short term less than that, you trade for him and hope that Jimmy Garoppolo can help you win four or five games and put you in a good spot to make the postseason once Dak Prescott comes back. But I'm, I'm curious to see like when we talk about teams and, and how much they should go for it in a given year, and we talked about this a lot with the Raiders and how good the AFC West is, but like if you're the Cowboys and you look at your division, you're not really scared of Washington. You're still not really scared of uh, aggressive Brian Dable and the New York Giants. But how scared should you be of the Eagles? Like they gave up 35 points to the Lions yesterday. They still won the game. I don't know if this is going to be, oh, the Eagles are legitimately one of the top two or three teams in the NFC. And no matter what the Cowboys do, they're not winning the division. So everything from here on out is just a matter of, hey, can you sneak into a wild card spot to win three straight road games in the postseason? In which case, you shouldn't be as aggressive. But maybe they're not as afraid of the Eagles. Maybe they look at the Eagles and say, okay, that team is just, they're a contender for the division, but they're not that good. And we can catch them if it's six games, Jimmy Garoppolo. Or maybe they look at it and say six games, Cooper Rush, whatever it is. But I think that's maybe the biggest key for the Cowboys and what they do next is what do they think of the Eagles? Can they catch them? Or do they believe the Eagles are in a class above them right now? Don't forget that last year, the Cowboys, granted the Amari Cooper Cowboys, went to Minnesota with Cooper Rush and beat the Vikings in Minnesota. So when you look at an upcoming schedule that goes Bengals at home, at Giants, home to Washington, at the Rams, at the Eagles, Lions at home, you probably see a schedule that to me, it doesn't matter whether you have Dak Prescott because there were certain games you were winning in there and there were certain games you were losing right from the jump. You should be beating the Giants in New York. You should be beating Washington at home, and you should be beating the Lions at home. You probably were never beating the Rams on the road, and let's be honest, they probably weren't beating the Eagles in Philadelphia in a primetime game. You know, they're going to get the Bengals next week, and I think that the Bengals underperformed massively uh, on their week one loss to the Steelers, but 
you probably should look at that as the one toss-up game. So I don't think there's a difference if you're the Cowboys in making that trade because Dak Prescott or Cooper Rush, you still have no skill position players. None. <laughs> None. C.D. Lamb cannot go out there and win by himself. By the way, C.D. Lamb targeted 11 times, two catches. Yeah, it's not good. Yeah, my fantasy team knows. Yeah. Um, all right, here's the NFL question that I, I think I need the most help with that I don't know which way to go. Um, the Packers lose to the Vikings 23-7. to And I don't know if that is simply last year where they lost to the Saints 38-3 to and then went 13-4 and and won the NFC, uh, NFC North. Or if this is different and there is legitimate reason to be worried about the Packers and the Vikings could actually win that division. I have a proposal for you, Tyler. Okay? I'm ready. All right. If the Raiders continue to be terrible... And if the Packers continue to be terrible, should we not arrange to trade Devontae Adams back to Green Bay in a few weeks here? Uh, do the Packers send, like, David Bakhtiari or some other offensive lineman in return? Uh, sure, that works. Okay. I like that. How about even just Elton Jenkins? Okay. Uh, the Packers should not be all that worried. Uh, look, Aaron Rodgers can overcome an offensive line that struggles. He could probably overcome receivers that can't separate. He can't do both at the same time. No Bakhtiari, no Jenkins in that game. He was under pressure all game from a revamped Minnesota defensive line, and he had nowhere to put the ball. So I think the receivers will get better. I think the line will get better. I think this is about the worst of what Aaron Rodgers will have to deal with. And I have a bigger question about the Green Bay defense giving up 9-164 and 164 to Justin Jefferson, who looked like he was ready to go full Randy Moss. All right, coming up next, Mike Ramallah joins the show after UNLV got handed its first loss of the season by Cal. But here, onside kick to start things up. Rebels with an onside kick. Let's see. Let's see. The Rebels say they have it. Let's see. Onside kick by Gutierrez. And the Rebels are jumping up and down celebrating. I don't see a call from the official yet, however. Everybody down yep. there. The Rebels have it. The Rebels have it. All of the sun, none of the fun on the Press Box Summer Edition featuring Adam Candy. Joining us now from the Las Vegas Sun is Mike Gramala. Good morning, Mike. How are you today? I am great. What's up, guys? Okay. Good morning. All right. Here's a here's a big picture question for you. UNLV last year, 0-6 in one-score games under Marcus Arroyo. They are now 0-1 this season in one-score games, despite having multiple drives and chances to take the lead against Cal. Is anything different about this team from last year in that regard? Not yet. Not yet. Uh, and, you know, in, in my opinion, close games are pretty much come down to quarterback and coach. And we saw mistakes from, from both, and that pretty much cost them the game. Uh, we saw Doug Brumfield, you know, stop short of the first down marker a couple times to end drives. Um, we saw UNLV come out and get just destroyed 14-0 in the, the first seven minutes, you know, the scripted portion of the game coming off a bye week. And at the end of the day, that's, uh, that's how you lose the game. So I think coach quarterback, we've got to see an improvement there if you want to start winning these close games. Yeah, 14-0 against a Cal team that had gone for negative one yards against Davis in the first quarter last week. You mentioned Brumfield, Mike, 18 of 33, 206, a touchdown, an interception, uh, 
overall, how long do you think the leash is on Doug Brumfield, knowing that Marcus Arroyo has Harrison Bailey and other options at quarterback? I think it's it's fairly long. Like I don't think Doug Brumfield uh, did anything to bring his job status into question in that game. I mean, we got to look at Harrison Bailey in that first game, and the gulf between Doug Brumfield and Harrison Bailey was so wide that. In a small sample size, I don't see any reason why they would be questioning that decision at this point. Um, I think I think Brumfield is a guy like Marcus Arroyo was more forceful than he's ever been in his press conference leading up to this game. He said, you know, Doug is the guy. The backups are not getting snaps in practice anymore. There's no plan to get them into games. It's Brumfield's team. So whether he plays great or whether he has a mediocre game like he did on Saturday, He's the guy. I think they're just going to roll with him. How concerning is it that UNLV, uh, they scored the touchdown to make it 20-14. to 14. They even recovered the onside kick, uh, had five drives there that they could take the lead. How concerning is it that it is a head coach that is calling the plays, a head coach that is supposed to be the offensive guru, the offensive guy, that the reason they lost that game isn't because the defense had any problems, but because the offense couldn't score on five drives? I, I mean, I think there's... Some of that is on the coaching. Some of it is on the players. As I mentioned, you know, they had a couple drives cut short just because Doug Brumfield could have run for a first down, but he, he didn't know what down it was, didn't understand the situation, got confused, and he just stepped out of bounds on one of the plays. And then on the other one, he slid a yard short of the first down. So, I mean, those aren't coaching decisions unless you want to blame Marcus Aurelio for not, like, coaching him up in an IQ sense. But, uh, yeah, you get down inside the 10-yard line, and you've got third down and fourth down, and you really can't even get a, a throw-off, I think you probably want to have a, a go-to play that you can call there that you are just you know is going to give you at least a chance instead of scrambling and having Doug Grunfield under pressure and just sort of heaving up a prayer. So, yeah, I mean, coaching, quarterback, as I come back to again, I think those are the, the two big factors. Has anything that's happened in the first two weeks of this season, Mike, changed your opinion about what you thought UNLV would be before the season? I I guess not. I mean, they are kind of what we or what I thought they'd be. They've got a, a competent pass receiving core. With the, I think we saw that again. They've Brumfield is somewhat entrenched in the job, but. He's not going to play like he did against, like, you know, not every opponent is Idaho State, so he's not going to look like that every week. He's going to be some up and downs. He's still young. That was his fourth career start. And so, you know, there's, I think we can expect some ups and downs. Defense, not great coverage in the, in the, the secondary. But, uh, yeah, I mean, one and one is I think where pretty much everyone expected them to be after two weeks. I thought they would win at Cal, but I think most people had them one and one. So they're they're right on track in that sense, I guess. Uh, how's your walk going? It's good. It was raining all morning here, but it stopped just in time for us to uh, to get outside. <laughs> uh, I'll give you a call, so I'm enjoying it. I do have an important question for you. Did you go to a drive-in movie theater in California? I did. In and San Jose. You so hold on. So you found a drive-in movie theater? Like, was that something you searched out, or how did you how did you end up at a drive-in movie theater? First of all, I love the drive-in. I'll always go to that for the drive-in. That's an American institution we should bring back. But uh, there was a movie that I wanted to see, and I had some time after the game 
and my flight didn't leave until the next day. So I was looking around for the movie. I saw some showtimes, and the closest place to me was actually a drive-in. So I was like, okay, I have a rental car. Let me park for a couple of hours and watch this movie. What what movie was it? Is that so strange? It's called uh, Barbarian. It is a um, horror movie that just came out, as you know, as Tyler. Knows. I do I not. I do not delicious. know. I do not know. I am a. I am sort of a, a horror movie addict. So anything that comes out, I want to see. So I went down to see that movie, and that was my first solo driving experience, um, and it was okay. What sort of food do you enjoy at a drive-in? <laughs> I got the giant tub of popcorn, the biggest one they have. I barely, I barely touched it. I get a box of Whopper. I stopped for candy before I got there. Um, so I don't know if this is available at most drive-ins, but I got a box of Whoppers. I got a box of Bitter Honey. I got a giant soda and a giant popcorn at the drive-in. And then I just settled in. Uh how? It's a good experience. I, I, we have one in Las Vegas. We have a drive-in here. I recommend everyone go and check it out. Have, what have you seen at the drive-in in Las Vegas? Oh, it's been a while. It's not oh. nothing since the pandemic. So. Wow. Wait, isn't, but, shouldn't drive-in movie theater be exactly what you do during a pandemic? It is, and there was a, there was a resurgence during that time. But I think we should all keep going. Like It's tough for me to go here because going to a drive-in solo here where I live is kind of weird. But doing it on the road, you know, where I'm just there by myself anyways, I don't feel like it's as weird. Like I have a social, a built-in social excuse for going by myself. I mean, you can go to a drive-in movie theater here by yourself. I don't think anybody's going to judge you for that. I, I know, but it's just I, I don't want to do that. I would, I would judge myself for it. Would you sit and eat at a restaurant by yourself? Here, where I live, no, but I've done that on the road. And it's... I don't know. I, mean, I don't like it. Normally, yeah, I was going to say, normally you tell us you get your food to go back to the hotel room. Yeah. It's a, it's a strange experience. Like, it's, I, I don't know why. I guess as antisocial as I am, I do need some level of socialization if I'm going to sit down <laughs> and commit to 45 minutes to an hour at a restaurant at a table. Like, what else am I going to do while I'm there? All right, before we let you go, have you been back to 7-Eleven to get your order that was exactly $7.11? I have not, but I'm thinking about hitting just different 7-Elevens around town just to, and, like, acting surprised each time. Oh, jeez. Because I got such a good response from the clerk at the, the first time it happened organically. But I, don't, I can't go back there because what if the same guy is working? Like, that's obviously something he'll remember for the rest of his life, so I can't really pull that again. Life? So, okay, you are worried about going to a drive-in movie theater by yourself because you need some level of social acceptance or something, but you're chasing the social high of impressing the 7-Eleven cashier with exactly $7.11 order. Yes. Okay. He is Mike Grimala. (laughs) Thanks, Mike. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys. (laughs) He's special. I like that guy pretty good oh pro move by the way the great thing about the drive-in is the yeah i got some pizzas i carried out in the back i was gonna say you can take whatever you want yeah Yeah. and you hide people underneath chairs how much does it cost to go to a drive-in movie theater? i don't know in missouri it costs like four bucks okay so you know you pay for two tickets the the driver and the passenger and you got like seven people in the back when's the last time you went to a drive-in movie theater 
It's probably been about a decade. Okay, because I've never been. Never been to one. I grew up in Mississippi. I don't even know if they existed in that state. Oh, you used to, we would, you, we'd drive out to Joplin or we'd drive out into the boonies. You'd stop at a Casey's. You'd pick up a pizza from a gas station, a couple pizzas from a gas station, load up on candy, <laughs> hide under the folding chairs. Ten bucks, seven people got to see a movie. We all ate gas station food. It was delightful. All right, go, coming uh, up. Go, go ahead, Adam. No, 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 no. You don't get to just leave on that. No. <laughs> that is the saddest 60 seconds in the history of the press box. What just happened? He was in Missouri. That sounds like yeah. a great and you, And you're talking about in Mississippi, we might not even have drive-ins. <laughs> right. That's why it's no problem. It sounds great to me. We never, I never got to do that. That was never an option. Sounds great. <sighs> My bumpkin buddies. Go back, you elitist <laughs> New Yorker. Yorker. Get out of here. Coming up next, we make Adam Candy defend referees again. You might have seen him at your local YMCA arguing with a U-12 coach. Let's tee it up with Adam. Wait, it's a ref segment? Wouldn't it make more sense if it was a golf segment? Whatever. Let's tee it up with Adam Candy. Our resident referee, Adam Candy, in today. We'll talk to Adam around 8.15. Uh, but Jared has been excited to ask this question, Adam Candy, for like two weeks, 10 days, something like that. I went on vacation and I'm still excited. Yeah. So this is a question from Reddit. And I'll, I'll just read as it was phrased on Reddit. If a player for the Cavaliers threw an inbound pass into the basket, but it slightly grazes Jarrett Allen's afro after the ball is released, would it count as a Jarrett Allen three-pointer? Would this be a way of shooting a game winner with 0.1 seconds on the clock? So, Adam, if I could find a way to graze the ball off of Jarrett Allen's afro, or I guess any player's hair, and it goes in as, a, as an inbounder, is that legal? Does that count? Set the backdrop here. So you have to understand <laughs> that if there are 0.3 seconds or less, you cannot catch and shoot the ball. 0.3 seconds and under, the only thing you can do is legally tap a ball into the basket. So the question with all of this comes down to, would the graze of an afro be counted as a legal tap or touch <laughs> of the basketball? So go back to the idea of if the ball hit Jared Allen's hair before it went out of bounds, would it count as him having touched the ball? Well, likely it would, right? Uh, oh, that that's going to be a problem. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to review that play and I can't imagine you're going to be able to determine whether that ball was legally tapped or touched. So uh, as to your question about was it a three-pointer, um, no, unless somehow... Oh, God, this is such a mess. Um, <laughs> let's just say odds are, unless the ball happened to graze his fro behind the three-pointer... I don't know. This, this is a mess. Okay. Odds are it's a two-pointer. So, well... But you have him stand in front of you so that you can get maximum graze on your inbound shot towards the basket. <clears throat> it, you would need to be able to legally attempt a three-pointer. In order to legally attempt a shot, you would have to have point three on the clock. Huh. So I'm thinking the best you can hope for in that situation is a two-pointer with some form of legal touch. Okay, so... 
So if you're down by one, this is a legitimate strategy. So Jarrett Allen near the basket, you throw it inbounds and it grazes his fro and goes in. You think that would count? <laughs> is, is that what I'm getting here? This is our best work. Grazes his fro. Like imagine it's not he, impossible. How okay. About that? Okay. Let me ask you this to, to extrapolate this beyond the hair part of this, because if there's less than 0.3 in your inbounding and you can't catch, could you conceivably throw it into somebody and they head the ball like it's soccer into the basket? <laughs> I don't know that it's impossible because without looking at the rule book, you're not allowed to contact the ball with a fist. Um, yeah. I don't know that as an intentional play this would work, but... You probably could pass it off. <laughs> so what you're saying is once the Cavaliers try this, there's going to be a new sentence in the rule book to specifically address hair and head related baskets in the last point three seconds. I, you know, I truly wish that the basketball rules were clearer on this because like I can talk to you about volleyball <laughs> and the fact that if a player's ponytail grazes the net, it does not count as having touched the net. Like <laughs> hair is specifically accounted for in certain sports, but not in basketball. I was going to say, it, it, like in football, you can tackle people by the hair and it's, it's not like a horse collar or a face mask or whatever. Like that's legal. Troy Polamalu, it's considered an extension of the uniform. Yeah. Okay. So ba ba what, what we found out here is basketball is just behind the times with hair-related rules. They have not come around to 2022 with knowing exactly when hair is legal and not legal. Yes. Okay. <laughs> all right. Great. Maybe. Adam. Is, uh, look, I'm going to go back to the rule book when this is all said and done. <laughs> we, Adam is going to spend his we, afternoon. We, we might have to book Adam tomorrow for like a five-minute call-in of like, all right, so I figured it out. Terry was mentioned three, three times. times. This is where they are. All right, Adam, quickly, Adam, and Tyler has a ton of other ref-related questions, so this is just for my own, like, pleasure. Have you ever had to do an Air Bud ruling where you look at the rule book and go, well, there's no rules that says you can't? There is a rule specifically in the rule book that says that any matters not expressly covered within the rules are at the judgment of the official. So a dog could play? <laughs> I don't remember anything specifying a, uh, you know, uh, classification of human uh, as a player. So, uh, sure, if you want Airbud to play, I think you could play. All right, here's uh, one of the more decisive refereeing decisions from the weekend, the Alabama-Texas game. Uh, Bryce Young hit in the end zone, appeared not to ever actually go down, didn't have his knee or elbow on the ground before releasing the ball. The refs, however, initially called targeting. That got reviewed and overturned, and ultimately it was an incomplete pass. It wasn't a safety. He never got actually uh, downed in the end zone. They did not rule intentional grounding, though, which I think ultimately became the main uh, complaint was that there wasn't an intentional grounding call. Do you think the referees got that call right in the Alabama-Texas game? Um, I don't like. I, I hate to disappoint you, but football rules are so intricate that I have absolutely <laughs> no idea. I, like, I'm watching the play repeatedly here, and I, I don't know how you would even begin to parse this out. Like, 
he essentially just like flips the ball in the air when he's on his way to the ground. And by the way, how did they even begin with the idea of a targeting ball? I, that That's was not even close. It was the the most that if they if it had stood as targeting or something, it would have been one of the most ridiculous calls I've ever seen. Because no, it was in no way was there targeting at any point during that play. No, no, not at all. And and by the way, wasn't it just fun to see Texas being competitive? Well, it, okay, no, the weird okay, the weird part is that somehow small, poor little Texas was like the underdog that everybody was cheering for. And I'm like, no, no, no. We're supposed to do this to like Georgia Southern. We're not supposed to do this to Texas. Poor little old Texas over here is this underdog trying to scrape by a win against Alabama. It felt weird that we were treating Texas like some group of five school going up against a power well, five school. But but it's no, but to me that's not what it's about. It's, it's not about treating Texas that way it's about that's how good Alabama is right like Alabama is such a house that we look at just about anybody where it's like oh the faded glory program like Texas like I would have treated it the same (laughs) way if Miami had played well against them I guess I know Miami's ranked right now but it's the same sort of thing like no you know what maybe not even let's let's use Nebraska well let's use Nebraska just in honor of Scott Frost and his ability to make millions and millions of dollars for sitting at home best job in college sports be a college coach that got fired. Best job in probably the entire country. Be a coach that got fired from a college football program. It's phenomenal. Uh, you get paid a whole lot of money. We'll get more into Scott Frost, Nebraska, and the college football world coming up here in just a minute and the, in the front page. Plus, the Aces are two wins away from a WNBA title.